ratification by the states. On February 1, 1865, when the proposed amendment was submitted to the states for ratification, there were 36 states in the U.S., including those that had been in rebellion, at least 27 states had to ratify the amendment for it to come into force. By the end of February, 18 states had ratified the amendment. Among them were the ex-Confederate states of Virginia and Louisiana, where ratifications were submitted by Reconstruction governments. These, along with subsequent ratifications from Arkansas and Tennessee raised the issues of how many seceded states had legally valid legislatures, and if there were fewer legislatures than states, if Article V required ratification by three-fourths of the states or three-fourths of the legally valid state legislatures. President Lincoln in his last speech, on April 11, 1865, called the question about whether the southern states were in or out of the Union a pernicious abstraction. He declared they were not in their proper practical relation with the Union, whence everyone's object should be to restore that relation. Lincoln was assassinated three days later. With Congress out of session, the new president, Andrew Johnson, began a period known as presidential reconstruction, in which he personally oversaw the creation of new state governments throughout the South. He oversaw the convening of state political conventions populated by delegates whom he deemed to be loyal. Three leading issues came before the conventions, secession itself, the abolition of slavery, and the Confederate war debt. Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina held conventions in 1865, while Texas Convention did not organize until March 1866. Johnson hoped to prevent deliberation over whether to readmit the southern states by accomplishing full ratification before Congress reconvened in December. He believed he could silence those who wished to deny the southern states their place in the Union by pointing to how essential their assent had been to the successful ratification of the 13th Amendment. Direct negotiations between state governments and the Johnson administration ensued. As the summer wore on, administration officials began giving assurances of the measure's limited scope with their demands for ratification. Johnson himself suggested directly to the governors of Mississippi and North Carolina that they could proactively control the allocation of rights to freedmen. Though Johnson obviously expected the freed people to enjoy at least some civil rights, including, as he specified, the right to testify in court, he wanted state lawmakers to know that the power to confer such rights would remain with the states. When South Carolina Provisional Governor Benjamin Franklin Perry objected to the scope of the Amendment's Enforcement Clause, Secretary of State Seward responded by telegraph that in fact the second clause is really restraining in its effect, instead of enlarging the powers of Congress. Politicians throughout the South were concerned that Congress might cite the Amendment's Enforcement Powers as a way to authorize black suffrage. When South Carolina ratified the amendment in November 1865, it issued its own interpretive declaration that any attempt by Congress toward legislating upon the political status of former slaves, or their civil relations, would be contrary to the Constitution of the United States. Alabama and Louisiana also declared that their ratification did not imply federal power to legislate on the status of former slaves. During the first week of December, North Carolina and Georgia gave the amendment the final votes needed for it to become part of the Constitution. The first 27 states to ratify the amendment were 1. Illinois, February 1, 1865. 2. Rhode Island, February 2, 1865. 3. Michigan, February 3, 1865. 4. Maryland, February 3, 1865. 5. New York, February 3, 1865. 6. Pennsylvania, February 3, 1865. 7. West Virginia, February 3, 1865. 8. Missouri, February 6, 1865. 9. Maine, February 7, 1865. 10. 
Kansas, February 7, 1865. 11. Massachusetts, February 7, 1865. 12. Virginia, February 9, 1865. 13. Ohio, February 10, 1865. 14. Indiana, February 13, 1865. 15. Nevada, February 16, 1865. 16. Louisiana, February 17, 1865. 17. Minnesota, February 23, 1865. 18. Wisconsin, February 24, 1865. 19. Vermont, March 9, 1865. 20. Tennessee, April 7, 1865. 21. Arkansas, April 14, 1865. 22. Connecticut, May 4, 1865. 23. New Hampshire, July 1, 1865. 24. South Carolina, November 13, 1865. 25. Alabama, December 2, 1865. 26. North Carolina, December 4, 1865. 27. Georgia, December 6, 1865. Having been ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states, 27 of the 36 states, including those that had been in rebellion, Secretary of State Seward, on December 18, 1865, certified that the 13th Amendment had become valid, to all intents and purposes, as a part of the Constitution. Included on the enrolled list of ratifying states were the three ex-Confederate states that had given their assent, but with strings attached. Seward accepted their affirmative votes and brushed aside their interpretive declarations without comment, challenge or acknowledgement. The 13th Amendment was subsequently ratified by the other states, as follows. 28. Oregon, December 8, 1865. 29. California, December 19, 1865. 30. Florida, December 28, 1865, reaffirmed June 9, 1868. 31. Iowa, January 15, 1866. 32. New Jersey, January 23, 1866, after rejection March 16, 1865. 33. Texas, February 18, 1870. 34. Delaware, February 12, 1901, after rejection February 8, 1865. 35. Kentucky, March 18, 1976, after rejection February 24, 1865. 36. Mississippi, March 16, 1995, certified February 7, 2013, after rejection December 5, 1865. Effects. The immediate impact of the amendment was to make the entire pre-war system of chattel slavery in the U.S. illegal. The impact of the abolition of slavery was felt quickly. When the 13th Amendment became operational, the scope of Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation was widened to include the entire nation. Although the majority of Kentucky slaves had been emancipated, 65,000 to 100,000 people remained to be legally freed when the amendment went into effect on December 18. In Delaware, where a large number of slaves had escaped during the war, 900 people became legally free. In addition to abolishing slavery and prohibiting involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, the 13th Amendment nullified the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Three-Fifths Compromise. The population of a state originally included, for congressional apportionment purposes, all free persons, three-fifths of other persons, for example, slaves, and excluded untaxed Native Americans. The Three-Fifths Compromise was a provision in the Constitution that required three-fifths of the population of slaves be counted for purposes of apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives and taxes among the states. 
This compromise had the effect of increasing the political power of slave-holding states by increasing their share of seats in the House of Representatives, and consequently their share in the Electoral College, where a state's influence over the election of the president is tied to the size of its congressional delegation. Even as the 13th Amendment was working its way through the ratification process, Republicans in Congress grew increasingly concerned about the potential for there to be a large increase in the congressional representation of the Democratic-dominated southern states. Because the full population of freed slaves would be counted rather than three-fifths, the southern states would dramatically increase their power in the population-based House of Representatives. Republicans hoped to offset this advantage by attracting and protecting votes of the newly enfranchised black population. They would eventually attempt to address this issue in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Political and Economic Change in the South Southern culture remained deeply racist, and those blacks who remained faced a dangerous situation. J.J. Grease reported to the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, there is a kind of innate feeling, a lingering hope among many in the South that slavery will be regalvanized in some shape or other. They tried by their laws to make a worse slavery than there was before, for the freedman has not the protection which the master from interest gave him before. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in 1935. Slavery was not abolished even after the 13th Amendment. There were four million freedmen and most of them on the same plantation, doing the same work they did before emancipation, except as their work had been interrupted and changed by the upheaval of war. Moreover, they were getting about the same wages and apparently were going to be subject to slave codes modified only in name. There were among them thousands of fugitives in the camps of the soldiers or on the streets of the cities, homeless, sick, and impoverished. They had been freed practically with no land nor money, and, save in exceptional cases, without legal status, and without protection. Official emancipation did not substantially alter the economic situation of most blacks who remained in the South. As the amendment still permitted labor as punishment for convicted criminals, southern states responded with what historian Douglas A. Blackman called an array of interlocking laws essentially intended to criminalize black life. These laws, passed or updated after emancipation, were known as black codes. Mississippi was the first state to pass such codes, with an 1865 law titled An Act to Confer Civil Rights on Freedmen. The Mississippi law required black workers to contract with white farmers by January 1 of each year or face punishment for vagrancy. Blacks could be sentenced to forced labor for crimes including petty theft, using obscene language, or selling cotton after sunset. States passed new, strict vagrancy laws that were selectively enforced against blacks without white protectors. The labor of these convicts was then sold to farms, factories, lumber camps, quarries, and mines. After its ratification of the 13th Amendment in November 1865, the South Carolina legislature immediately began to legislate black codes. The black codes created a separate set of laws, punishments, and acceptable behaviors for anyone with more than one black great-grandparent. Under these codes, blacks could only work as farmers or servants and had few constitutional rights. Restrictions on black land ownership threatened to make economic subservience permanent. Some states mandated indefinitely long periods of child apprenticeship. Some laws did not target blacks specifically, but instead affected farm workers, most of whom were black. At the same time, many states passed laws to actively prevent blacks from acquiring property. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.